0: Good morning, and welcome to Ordinary Life, which is an educational offering of St. Paul's United Methodist Church here in Houston, Texas. I'm glad to see people physically present, and I know there are people who are watching. Uh, as always, I want to thank the crew that makes it possible for us to do this time: Tim Leatherwood, John Watson, Olivia, William Budge, Richard Wingfield handles getting the links up uh, for, for registration. And Wayne um, and Callista Herbert contribute by making sure we have sacred cookies, and Wayne and uh, sends me all these great cartoons that we get to use. Did it? You got announcements? I,
1: no, I, other than the same things we've been announcing for the last couple of days. I did get the link up on Instagram just before. <laughs> that was so urgent. Um, just kidding. Um, I don't. We don't. We do have a guest speaker next yes, speaker week. Next yeah. Week, that's an important announcement. Um, well, Wayne suggested a guest speaker to us next week who's going to come during this hour in person. Yes? Yeah. Um, And it, so, yeah, so we'll be sitting in the audience with you guys instead of...
0: And it comes at a good time because yeah. next Sunday I will be giving the sermon at both uh, 8.30 and 11 o'clock service here. So... And then the next Sunday, the church Mm -hmm. will be burned down, I'm sure. Are you Uh,
1: saying something heretical?
0: Not other, not, I'm doing my usual stuff. (laughs) Is that heretical? I don't think so.
1: In the best possible way. (laughs) So.
0: That didn't work. So we pray to and from sacred mystery these words. We offer ourselves to you to build with us and do with us as you please. And we ask to be relieved of bondage to the ego so we may better grow into our true selves. And no matter who you are, no matter where you are on your spiritual journey, you are are welcome welcome here. here. So the title of this time today is The Transformation of Consciousness. And this title is not original with either one of us. We got it from the chapter in John Sanford's book about the Gospel of John that deals with John the Baptist. And though today we're going to talk a fair amount about history and documents that we have that inform us about the Jesus story, I want you to keep in mind that the Gospel of John is a parable. It was written from within a worldview that we no longer embrace, but it has relevance for us if we can make the same kind of transition in our time that produced the community that produced the gospel of John. That makes sense? What I'm saying. So today we're going to continue to lay the foundation and create a framework, for uh, what is coming up in the Gospel of John, because the next time we co-teach in here, we will uh, be getting into the Book of Signs. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know the first sign in the Book of Signs is that the story of Jesus turning water into wine. And it, based on what Sanford says, and based also on what John Shelby Spong says, we're going to do t- two Sundays to that particular... Uh, Sign The first one is, I think we're going to do the feminine face of the sacred first. And then the second one we're calling Living in Ordinary Miracles. So um, scholars of Christian documents are really in firm agreement that there was a historical character who was given the title John the Baptizing One. Now, if you've read Spong's book on the Gospel of John, Spong uses the character of John the Baptist to stress the Jewish nature of the Gospels, which we will get into at a later date. Sanford, on the other hand, uses the passages at the beginning of John to talk about the evolution of consciousness, and that's what we're going to talk about for today. By the way, those of you who have been riding with me on this journey for a while have heard of John Sanford before. He wrote many books. He uh, was assigned reading for me when I was in clinical training. Mm -hmm. Jungian was a well-known, I mean, Sanford was a well-known Jungian analyst. He studied with colleagues of Jung himself, and he wrote books about dreams and dream interpretation that have been very helpful to me. Uh, and he also wrote a little book called *The Kingdom Within*, the inner meaning uh, of Jesus' sayings. This is a book that I have read several times, and uh, taught from it. It's now available in Kindle format. It's another really good resource for having a daily daily spiritual, spiritual practice. practice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And reading it, you will learn something about yourself, you will learn how your conscious mind was created as a survival tool from the unconscious, and you will learn some things about how to access the unconscious by reading this book. So I want to suggest a way that you can get the most out of these times together. I personally find that when I attend something like this, it's helpful to me to have something to write on. Now you don't have to take notes on what we say. The text that is in, uh, in front of us was available on the internet on Tuesday mornings, or you can have it delivered to your electronic inbox on Tuesday by going to the Ordinary Life website and signing up for the previews and summaries. Um, so rather than take notes per se, I think it would be helpful to write down the things or ideas with which you have the most resonance. What seems true to your own experience? What inside of you do you affirm to be true? Maybe something that we say reminds you of something you already know but had forgotten that would be useful for the journey. And then notice what things you have resistance to. What do you hear that goes against what you hold to be true? Do we say something you don't want to hear? Does it grate against your normal way of thinking about or viewing things? If there is something that makes you want to dig in your heels or turn away, pay attention to that because it can be very instructive. And then the third thing that I would suggest you pay attention to is the issue of realignment. Has something shifted for you? Um, Something that reconfigures in such a way that you might live out of a different place, no matter how insignificant it might be. This is how we notice if growth is taking place in us or not. Now, of the values that I keep holding up in here, peace, love, joy, patience, and humility, it's patience and humility that are being called for uh, in doing these three things, particularly the ones that have to do with resistance and the realignment. You know, just to resist, just be patient. So don't exercise any kind of judgment about these insights that you get, either positively or negatively, just notice them. One of the things that people who have experienced transformation of consciousness and are able to live out of a more unitive place in their hearts and minds is that they are more observers all the time observers without being judgmental so don't let the ego control just notice and it is this noticing that is at the heart of meditation
1: you know what i notice about both of us we add these flourishes at the end of our sections so <laughs> so we never know when the other's going to stop
0: you mean ad libs mm-hmm. i never do that mm-hmm. <laughs> flourish was a different word <laughs> That's funny. Um,
1: In this chapter on John the Baptist, who uh, Samford explicitly equates with the symbol of the transformation of consciousness, he mentions one of my favorite thinkers, who is Pierre Teilhard de Chardin. You've heard both of us refer to him over time. So Pierre Teilhard de Chardin was a philosopher-theologian, and he understood that the whole of evolution served the purpose of elevating consciousness. So not just human evolution, but all of evolution. That as things complexify, so does the thinking thing, if you will. Over the years, I'm sure my consciousness has been raised in this very room. I bet a lot of us can agree with that. And there is a thought shared by Carl Jung that the more we work on ourselves, the more we change the world. Teilhard theorized about this kind of global consciousness, and he thought it was actually a layer of the Earth's atmosphere. He called it the nuosphere, which he, so as I said, was a literal layer of the Earth's atmosphere. So you have the geosphere, which contains all the rocks, land, water, oops, I didn't put that in, the, all the li- rocks, land, water, and air. We have the biosphere, the next layer of reality, which is all of the living things, so plants, animals, sea life, human life, and then outside of that is the noosphere, which is this thin membrane of consciousness, and it is still in formation. It is the sphere of thought that envelops the earth. Some say that Teilhard, who was fascinated with technology, foresaw the internet. In other words, that the internet is this thing that connects consciousness, not I'm not making a value judgment on that. It can be positive or negative, but it does connect consciousness. And it has this incredible ability to rapidly connect a thought. You know how fast a thought can be spread from China to Mexico, for example, right? It's the rise of planetary consciousness that Teilhard saw as integrating the geological, the biological, the human, and technological aspects. He was what you would call a technophile, and actually Delio falls in line with that, which means he loved technology and saw technology as a wonderful invention to elevating consciousness. I think it depends on how we use it. We've seen that we can use it for terrible things. But I do love um, the artwork that comes out of conceiving of the newosphere. It kind of has this wonderful imaginary component of it that we can sort of think of what is the mind is there a mind that envelops life? Teilhard saw the primary human function as evolving the noosphere that might ultimately, ultimately lead to what he called the Omega Point, which is the complete fusion of spirit and matter. And despite all of the threats, the, the horrible events that Teilhard lived through, he participated in two world wars. So he participated in trench warfare he saw the Holocaust, he saw the dropping of an atomic bomb, he saw the threat of excommunication from a church that he loved. Because he was writing about evolution and writing about consciousness on a sort of evolutionary scale, the Catholic Church threatened to excommunicate him if he continued to write. So he did write, but he never published he just kept it and I I do you remember this Ilya Delio saying that she was given original manuscripts of Teilhards after he died
0: somebody was cleaning out his office yeah. and ran across these things and mentioned them to Ilya and said I don't know if these have any value or not right. but you can have them if yeah. you want them yeah so
1: he could not, he, he would have been excommunicated had he published in his lifetime. As it was, he sort of remained in exile from um, France for a long time and traveled around in many other places, but continued to put his thoughts down. And despite all of the terrors that he saw, he remained really optimistic about human compassion. He amidst so much suffering, he saw evidence of deep empathy. It seems we're kind of continually on the razor's edge of balancing the two, causing suffering, and causing empathy. He believed that evil was a kind of cosmic groan. I love that phrase. A necessary birthing pain, he says, for heightened levels of consciousness to occur. He writes this line, and it's so like um, James Baldwin's, the world is an immense groping, an immense search, an immense attack. Its progress can take place only at the expense of many failures, of many wounds. And then similarly, my favorite, James Baldwin, writes much later, actually not much later, about within a decade of, um, of Teilhard, actually, love is a battle, love is a war, love is a growing up, which cannot occur without transforming pain, without entering into pain. This is not easy. (laughs) Teilhard believed that humans possess this unique capacity for self-conscious reflection. And we've both said this in here, that we are the universe becoming conscious of itself. He also conceived that human evolution is not just this continued divergence, in other words, getting more and more and more different, but an eventual convergence into more integrated wholes. The direction of that convergence, he believed, is towards unity. Do not confuse unity with sameness. It just means that the parts are working together to achieve a greater whole. Finally, he saw that humans are a global species, that we are capable of dwelling in almost all places around the world. I guess maybe there's not a lot of human energy going on in Antarctica, but (laughs) that remains to be seen. But think about that, an elephant for example, cannot thrive in the wild of Texas or in the cold in Alaska, but humans are in both places. Humans are the most adaptable species that we know of, probably besides bacteria or viruses, which we've also learned are quite adaptable. The sphere is this planetary nervous system. So think of how our own nervous systems become heightened to our surroundings and then adapt accordingly to changes or shifts. He saw this happening with the earth, that the earth is this living being that adapts as needed. He's among the pioneers of the 20th century placing evolution alongside theology. He says that evolution is the general condition to which all other theories, all hypotheses, and all systems must bow, and which they must satisfy henceforward if they are to be thinkable and true. Evolution is a light illuminating all facts, a curve that all lines must follow. It is the earth discovering its soul, and to save that soul, we must participate in that discovery. So back to John the Baptist. He introduces this ritual of baptism. Well, formally, in other words, the sort of the, the ritual that we now know of as baptism in the in the Christian church. One that we can see symbolic of the choice to participate in the evolution of consciousness. Baptism is not bapt—let me start over. <laughs> Baptism is not the removal of filth from the flesh, but a pledge of good conscience toward God, toward all things. Really, to me, God and reality are synonymous. It is a symbol of renewed consciousness or an encounter with our depths as well as our absolute light. Perhaps I thought of this uh, this week, you know, most, uh, how many in here were baptized at birth? Okay, about half. Um, I was not. Were you baptized at birth? You're a, really? Mm -hmm. As a Baptist? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. That's what happened. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) I wasn't until I was 14 by Terry Thompson, actually. Um, And my kids still aren't baptized. What do you think that means?
0: That you're a heathen.
1: Okay. Um, I'll tell the kids you said that. Nice Mr. Bill (laughs) calls you a heathen. Um, (laughs) Anyhow, it occurred to me that maybe we shouldn't be baptized just when we're born or when we're 13 or 14 at confirmation, but many times throughout our life as a rite of initiation into the next stage.
0: So um, we all know of historic figures. I'm putting the flourish at the beginning. Okay. <laughs> we all know that they're historical beings like uh, George Washington. He really existed. And there have been stories created about George Washington. He threw a silver dollar across the Potomac. We probably know that didn't happen. He chopped down a cherry tree and then said, when asked about it, he said, I chopped it down because I cannot tell a lie. That probably didn't happen. So, It's okay that we have historic figures in our history that we can acknowledge. Stories were made up about them. But when you get to the Bible, it gets a little tricky because people have certain (laughs) invested views about the Scripture, and they don't want you to say that. So, John the Baptist was a historic figure. Um, Josephus, the Roman Jewish historian, mentions him as a major and revered figure. He plays a fairly prominent role in Mark, Matthew, and Luke. Of course, Matthew and Luke, copy from Mark. He's considered to be the forerunner of Jesus, one who announces him as the Messiah who is coming after him. And according to Luke, John and Jesus are relatives. Now, when you get to the Gospel of John, John the Baptist occupies a relatively small place, a tiny place. And I I, I want to say some things about where contemporary biblical scholarship is with the historical evidence that can be more than likely assumed about both John and Jesus. And it's probably going to go contrary to what you've heard before and what you might, because of what the church and people in authority have taught you, what you might think is true. But um, what I'm going to offer is the result of minds that are a lot brighter than mine, who have devoted their lives to what life was like in first century Palestine when both Jesus and John were historic figures who walked the planet. Now, we have, at least I have, spent decades assuming that Jesus and the people around him lived pretty much like we did. I was convinced growing up that Jesus was a Baptist Whoa. and that Jesus went to church Sunday morning and Sunday night and went to prayer meeting on Wednesday night. I mean, that's just kind of the osmosis that I grew up in, thinking about that sort of thing. Jesus grew up in a culture of class and belonging, and because of the nature of his birth, He didn't belong. And in that time, in that culture, young women married between the ages of 12 and 14. And young men were expected to be making it on their own at around that same time. Most people stayed within the family grouping for most of their lives, some didn't. Because Jesus was very likely not welcomed in the religious gatherings of his social group, he was not welcome in the synagogue because of the nature of his birth, it was likely the synagogue's disdain for him that caused Jesus to develop this really deep skepticism about religious authority. Okay? So very likely, we don't know, but very likely... Based on what we do know about the sociology, the history, the economics, the structure of the time, very likely Jesus left home sometime between the ages of 12 and 14. And Jesus learned from John, developed his ideas that would change not only his life, but the course of religious history. We're sitting here today because of that change in the course in religious history. John was a mystic, he was a religious ecstatic, and and he taught Jesus his ways. But Jesus, with his charismatic personality, developed a distinctive path to his understanding of God that was all his own. And unique to John's teaching was, as Holly said, baptism. Now, it's not that baptism was unique, Baptism has been part of religions since the beginning of religions. All religions involve water in some way or another. There's a story in the, in the Old Testament in the Hebrew Scriptures about Naaman having leprosy and being commanded to go wash in the River Jordan seven times. Remember? Seven times is a really important key Number. Uh, in all these stories, 7 and 12. We'll, we'll get to that as we go along. Bathing, bathing by immersing oneself in a body uh, in, in a pool of water, uh, which, by the way, was crucial to temple worship. It wasn't just a matter of hygiene, but it helped maintain one's place in the community. And what made John the Baptist's baptism unique, what made it stand out, was that he tapped into the very popular discontent people had over how religious authorities tried to control and profit from how people made themselves clean. You had to pay to be baptized in the temple pools, and John said, "Mm, Come get into Jordan, that'll do it, and you don't have to pay a penny. And that's why the religious authorities were so upset with John. Um, And Jesus would come along, and he would take it even further showing uh, the evil powers of the system for what it was. Jesus just went further from John. It was not immersion in water that mattered to Jesus. In his later ministry, it was immersion in the sacred spirit that not only led to release from the prison of the belonging system, but also it introduced one into a community of compassion. And it is in the community of compassion, both entering into it and living out of it, that leads to the transformation of consciousness. Make sense? Entering into it and living out of it. You'll hear Jesus talking as we go on about entering into the kingdom of God, which is not a place to get to, it's a place to live from. So, so the, the Gospel of John doesn't present John the Baptist as a historic figure. He is a symbol. The old way doesn't work. John's symbolizes disaffection with the old. And Jesus, according to the Gospel of John, symbolizes new consciousness coming into being.
1: It seems like a good moment to talk about the sort of significance or symbolism of water, what it symbolizes on a psychological and archetypal level. Why do we use water in baptism? In the Gospel of John, John is the vessel. Remember, he's the thunder in the desert, and Jesus is the water. The symbol repeats throughout Hebrew Scripture. So even though the act of baptism as we relate to it is introduced here, This this symbol is, as you said, I feel like I'm repeating you, (laughs) ancient. This was mentioned, the spirit of God brooding over the inky waters in the first lines of Genesis, the great flood of Noah's ark, Moses parting the Red Sea, Jonas in the belly of a whale. In each of these scenes, water represents transformation from one kind of existence to the next. The moment between a chaotic cosmos and a kind of ordered one. A seismic shift in the Earth's surface and the growth and population of new creatures. That to me is what uh, Noah's Ark story symbolizes. Maybe a geological age. Um, And then a radically renewed consciousness. That's Jonah and the whale. And in the story of Moses, it represents liberation. Water is freedom. Even though baptism in this way isn't mentioned specifically in the Bible until Mark in the New Testament, these are all baptismal events, shifts in consciousness, shifts in something so big. We are formed by this inky blackness, which did not in fact contain nothing, but it contained the possibility for everything. One of my um, newly favorite theologians is Catherine Keller, and she explores what she calls a tehomic theology, a theology that's centered on the great deep of the primordial waters of creation. She challenges the reader to embrace chaos not as bad or ungodlike, which we so often relate to darkness in this way, but as fundamental to our origins. Water is not the point from which we emerge anew, but it is symbolic of what we must journey through in order to come out different. Tihomic theology is inherently feminine. It also represents a birthing process and rebirth. So birth and rebirth are inherently symbolic in Tihomic theology. She writes that creation is not ex nihilo, which means out of nothing, but ex profundis, which means creation out of the deep waters as the germinating abyss that creates all. Let's think about some of the properties of water. Has anyone in here read any of the studies about water having memory? Water remembers every place that it's ever been, and if you examine a droplet of water, it has evidence of everywhere that it's ever been. This means that every microscopic pattern that reflects that journey is in in our bodies and all the water that is in our bodies. The implications of that to me are so cool. We are 70% water. The Earth is also 70% water. And the water that's in our bodies has not, didn't originate with us, but it tr- it's taken a long journey. So we're not just us. We're everywhere that water has ever been. There's also this kind of idea of it is a universal solvent. So water is, let me get through that one. <laughs> water is capable of dissolving more substances than any other liquid, stone, iron, sugar, coffee, right? So from the very, very hard to the very, very soft. Water helps cell transport, so that means that you it can transport nutrients and oxygen to everywhere else in the body and into the earth. And water restores homeostasis through the removal of toxins. This is a bit like what happened during Earth's formation. It was hot. It was volcanic. It was unlivable. Over approximately one billion years, the atmosphere vaporized steam and then cooled enough to form rain. And that rain received, eventually the earth cooled enough to receive the rain and not just turn it right back into steam. And the oceans were born, right? And all of life came from the oceans. The homeostatic qualities are also why they say it's so good for us to drink water if we've been through a traumatic event or through shock that um, so often when I was in uh, trauma response training, the first thing we learned was to tell all the participants to drink water or to bathe in in that evening. Um, I remember dealing with, unfortunately, a stabbing at a school, and the advice to all of the students was take a long, hot bath, because water restores that shock in the body. And finally, water is transformative, not just in the natural world. Um, we can consider something like the Grand Canyon or Arches National Park. These were formed underground by water, by interactions with salt deposits and water. It represents also, as we've been talking about, a spiritual cleansing, a renewal of life. And according to Teilhard, and I think according to what John the Baptist is saying and what Jesus is saying, is that we play a part, an active part, in this evolution of consciousness. If it has a direction... So to me, that's debatable still. Like, what is the direction of consciousness? Sometimes I'm very certain that it's toward love. Sometimes I feel like we're sliding way backward. And, but the point is that we have a choice to make about the direction that we want our consciousness to go. Every single day we wake up and we have a choice as to how or whether we support or choose love. It can be really hard to think about love globally well, how do I put more love out there in the world when there's so much going on? And it's really hard to get far away enough from ourselves to observe whether we're doing that in our lifetime. So I think we can get really micro about this and ask ourselves, what are we doing today to choose love? What did we do today to move that arc a little bit more towards it? This is one of the questions that I think Jesus's ministry asks us, is how are we showing up in the world? As we understand the cosmos in a totally different way and our growing acceptance, maybe some of us are still struggling with this idea that there is no separate sky God, it occurs to me that there is so much more expected from the human. God's not going to save us from ourselves. It's not our escape plan. This time demands of us so much more, so much more goodness, so much more consciousness, so much more being love in this world. And it is really a wrestling with the transformation of our moral and spiritual selves. Baptism is not intended to change a particular outcome about the next life, but to raise us to be the best version of ourselves in this life.
0: So I I wanna say something about baptism Um, that's not in the notes.
1: Okay, flourish. Flourish.
0: And I think progressives have a harder time with this than conservatives do, what I'm about to say. Because we uh, progressives sort of separate our minds and our bodies. We get our minds, everything's up here. And baptism is not a one time event in the life of Jesus, in the life of John the Baptist, in the life of any of these Middle Eastern people. It was a, a dramatic ritual. That they did over and over and over again. It was imagine the whirling dervishes, or imagine if you've ever seen a rabbi read the Torah. They get into the body rock, or if you've ever seen a Muslim read the Quran,
1: or if you've ever seen a Baptist get the Holy Spirit.
0: Yeah, absolutely, the body <laughs> is at, the body is in there, and the, the body movement um, leads to this kind of ecstatic experience. So it wasn't that they went into the water. Once, they did it over and over and over, and it induced a kind of trance, a kind of ecstatic way of experiencing themselves and what was around them. So don't think of baptism as the way you have seen baptism performed in churches. It was not that at all.
1: It's just symbolic it, of our daily commitment.
0: And, and when we get to the water and the wine, notice how much water is involved. Over and over and over again. So anyway. So um, between the time Jesus is 12 and he went to be baptized by John, we know virtually nothing about that period of Jesus' life. The scholars refer to this as the hidden years. And with good reason. But scholarship and piety abhor a vacuum. So these years have been filled in some pretty creative ways. In the Gospel of Luke, it is said that Jesus submitted to his parents back in Nazareth and that he increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. And a myth has been created about Joseph, Jesus' father, because in one portion of the gospel, Jesus is spoken to in a derisive way by saying, isn't this the carpenter's son, right? And so there is this myth that grew up around Jesus and Joseph. And you no doubt have seen artist renditions of Jesus growing up in the carpenter's shop with his father. This is not the one that graced the walls of the church where I grew up. I couldn't find that one, but there is one where uh, Jesus is helping Joseph out in the carpenter shop. I hope you know that nothing, absolutely nothing in Christian scripture supports this. Nothing. Sometime in the second century, there was a, a, a writing that appeared that contained a story where one day Joseph was working with a piece of wood that was too short, so Jesus stretched it to the correct length.
1: It was a rubber tree.
0: Yeah. And 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 uh, once Jesus fashioned some birds out of clay, and then made them have life and fly away. There are scriptures; they didn't get it, make it in the New Testament. But there are writings that contain these these kind of stories. I think that the funniest and likely most sacrilegious portrayal of Jesus' hidden years was written by Christopher Moore. It's called "Lamb: The Gospel According to Biff, <laughs> Christ's Childhood Pal." I've read this book a couple of times, it is so funny, and it is sacrilegious, warning. (laughs) And for me, the most scholarly book that has been written uh, on the hidden years is that of a very highly respected scholar and historian by the name of Bruce Chilton called Rabbi Jesus, an intimate biography. Now I want to be clear, there have been dozens of books, scholarly books, written about the hidden years of Jesus. This is one of them. Um, I recommend this book. It's not a difficult read, but it will certainly enlighten you about the context, the economy, the life, the communal life that, that was true in, the, in Palestine in the time of Jesus growing up years. Now, we don't know what really happened, but we do now know because of more archaeological discoveries and more manuscript discoveries, we're learning more and more about that particular time. So in the Gospels, Jesus is depicted as going to Jerusalem with his parents for the Passover. And what the scholars now know is that the size of the temple in Jerusalem that Jesus saw is is likely beyond our comprehension. Just the outer court, which is would be in the left side of the screen. Is that right? That big open space? Mm-hmm was uh, five football fields long and three football fields wide. It was Because, en- of course, they
1: had a context for football back then. Right. So we can know. Well, yeah.
0: That's the only analogy I could come up
1: with.
0: <laughs> the point is, the complex was enormous, and you couldn't get in without being baptized. Mm. Nobody, Jewish or non-Jewish, You had to go into one of these pools that surrounded the temple and be immersed. You had to go into full immersion. No clothes. And of course you had to pay for it. Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's how they built this giant
0: complex. Now I think it's hard for us for whom baptism is little more than a naming ritual to imagine the emotional um, enormity. The intensity that this once a year trip, if then, to what was considered the holiest place on earth, on the holiest day on earth, what it might mean to an adolescent boy. Jesus had come to the place where, according to their theology, God lived. God's presence was in the temple, in the holy of holies. Once a year, the high priest went there. This was their theology. God's presence was there more palpable than any other place on the planet, according to what they had come to believe. This was the home of Abba, Jesus' father. And father does not mean masculine in the sense. It is a connotation of intimacy that Jesus had with the sacred. So, though Jesus had been excluded from the gatherings in the synagogue at Nazareth, here, that exclusion did not apply. and and the themes of fatherhood of God and the importance of inclusion would mark Jesus teachings for the rest of his life. Now the gospels we're used to reading don't focus much on John the Baptist because they deliberately shove John the Baptist into the background. They want to make Jesus the main star, which of course he is. But the key, To Jesus' crucial teenage and young adult years is in what he learned from John. Now, no doubt he disputed with John. Um, John was a far more politically radical person than Jesus was, meaning he was specifically politically radical. He criticized Herod by name. Mm -hmm. That's why he got beheaded. He, he upset the, the royal family. Well,
1: it was a woman who demanded he get beheaded too. Yeah. To... yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. So it's in this context that Jesus is going to develop the ideas that would not only change his life, but also would change the course of religious history. It was a message about how things didn't need to be the way that they were and that there was a new way of being that was possible. And what would be necessary for embracing this new way of being was not only a new way of thinking, but an absolute transformation of consciousness.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: No flourish, yes.
1: No flourish. Okay. <laughs> that we're in it. Um, I think the, the sort of challenge to us is to become like water. And I'm, I'm, maybe it's because I'm a Pisces. I don't know, but I'm in love with the symbol of water. It's transformative. It's capable of dissolving the hardest wedges. It's homeostatic. We've kind of buried the symbolism of baptism in doctrine and hinged its importance on a single question, which is, are you saved? But symbolically, this salvation happens again and again and again. I want to say every day, we are born again. As I wrote this, my memory kind of floated back to a meditation I read about three years ago from Barbara Holmes. Um, Is Brian here? Yeah, she's she's among the faculty at the Center for Action and Contemplation, Richard Rohr's place and she's a scholar on race, the cosmos, and African-American spirituality. I was thinking about how terrifying water must have been to the Africans forced into the hold of cargo ships and forced to the Americas to become slaves. This was not, or I'm sorry, this was a baptism of sorts. It changed their lives forever. It was transformative, but not in the way that we think that the process has occurred and it was not altogether positive. But she writes about the middle pas- passage, and she says that it initiated something that has been so influential to American culture by way of soul food, jazz and blues, dance, art, James Baldwin, my favorite, sport, Michael Jordan. <laughs> right, we can you name know, so many really and powerful, what we identify as American cultural icons. And honestly, it's also articulated for us how much work we have to do as a society to actually become just and good and fair. It brought with, this this passage brought to us our own consciousness, our own conscience. The water provided the transport for the initiation of the African American culture, and under the most impossible of circumstances, it has been resilient. And baptism therefore is not always beautiful. It can be painful and dark and scary. Most babies cry when they're born. In fact, that's a symbol that they're alive if they start to cry. And again, during ceremonial baptism, have you had a lot of babies cry when you baptize them? Yeah. Yeah.
0: And I was just thinking of a, a meme that somebody sent around earlier about this little baby speaking into the camera saying Man, it was awful. They took me to church and put me in a dress and then tried to drown me.
1: Right. <laughs> exactly. It can be terrifying. I remember the first time I tried to gently lay my son's head back in the bathtub to rinse his hair, and he just his eyes were full of terror. So Barbara Holmes writes, They lay together in an involuntary rebirthing cocoon. It was a community of sorts. Yet each person lay in their own chrysalis of human waste and anxiety. More often than not, these Africans were strangers to each other by virtue of language, culture, and tribe. Although the names of their deities differed, they shared a common belief in the seen and unseen. The journey was a rite of passage of sorts that stripped captives of their personal control over the situation and forced them to turn to the spirit realm for relief and guidance. The only common sound that would carry Africans over the bitter waters was the moan. Moans flowed through each racked body and drew each soul toward the center of contemplation. One imagines the spirit moaning as it hovered over the deep during the Genesis account of creation. Here the moan stitches horror and survival instincts into a creation narrative. On the slave ships, the moan became the language of stolen strangers The sound of unspeakable fears, the precursor to joy yet unknown. The moan is the birthing sound, the first movement toward a creative response to oppression, the entry into the heart of contemplation through the crucible of crisis. This is part of the possibility of baptism, is to move through pain and fear into something transformed. I think back to the world in which I imagine Jesus lived, a divided world, a hurting one. And I feel like we live in such a world today in which we need a creative response to division. We need these baptismal waters to become something new. It's not comfortable, meaning mostly for white folks, I think, to encounter ourselves and our ancestors as sites of oppression. But it's a yoke that needs to be acknowledged so that it can be changed. If we are unaware of the yokes we bear, we can't change them. If we don't enter the water, we can't become aware. I thought of Hafiz's poem. We, we kind of need to be like the fish who becomes aware that it's wet, right? <laughs> Hafiz wrote this poem first. I'm about to swear. It's in his poem. He's a mystic. I think I can say it. Um, first, the fish needs to say something ain't right about this camel ride, and I'm feeling so damn thirsty. Pay attention to that thirst. To know how we are submersed in the water is to become aware of what lurks there. To become aware of what lurks in the water is to call it by name. When we call it by name, we invite its presence. And once it's there, once we acknowledge its presence, we can't ignore it. We can't know the light without also knowing these inky, dark waters of creation. I want to share one of my favorite meditations from Howard Thurman, who really put time, energy, his entire life's work, into developing what he called, this was not original with him, but the beloved community. And it was a a community dedicated to the intentional relationship building between interracial and intercultural and interfaith people. He found a lot of solace in the natural world. In his book, The Meditations of the Heart, he implores us to discover whether we are canals, reservoirs, or swamps. think I've mentioned this in here before. He says that some lives are channels, canals through which things flow. They connect other people, movements, and purposes. They connect needs to help, friendlessness to friendliness, and a canal can also be a peddler of gossip. So we choose which kind of canal are we. Second, a reservoir is a resource upon which we can draw in times of need. A reservoir holds water so that during times of drought, we can pull from it. The inlet and the outlet, however, must be kept clean and clear in order for the reservoir to thrive, in order for the water to remain pure. If they do remain clean and clear, the cup is never empty. But if the inlet and the outlet become blocked, the reservoir becomes contaminated. Third. There's a swamp. And often we think of a swamp as a place where living things sicken and die. The water is stagnant, and it has no outlet, although they are actually extremely important ecosystems. I was kind of feeling bad for dogging on the swamp, <laughs> so I looked up. What is, what is a swamp good for, was basically what I looked up. And beneath the water, it's this transfer of nutrients that's happening constantly. So there is goodness in the swamp, but it's often hidden. It stays in the unconscious. So they're like sponges that absorb all this excess water, and they can keep coastlines from flooding. But if they're not continually kept in balance, everything decays if the water gets too low or floods if the water gets too high. Swamp people can become a little bit like resource hoarders. So it's likely we've experienced ourselves as all three at different points in our life. But what is the arc? Which type of water do you most want to be? A canal, a reservoir, or a swamp?
0: So our goal today was to create a framework or foundation for what's coming. Uh, As we get into the Book of Signs, transformation is not something that happens at the head level. That's one major point today. It's not just about getting more knowledge and information. Now, I think knowledge and information are critical. I find that one of the things that really juices me up and makes me hopeful is that there's so much more to know, so much more to learn. Um, I personally find the information that I pass on to you that increases spiritual literacy and um, religious literacy. I find it fun. Mm -hmm. I find it fascinating. It energizes me. And I also know that we can't stop at that level of knowledge and information, we have to move into the territory of wisdom and understanding. So what we have in the first part of John is a parable, and it's a parable of something that has been happening in the cosmos since the Big Bang. What is new is rooted in the past and has continuity with it even, if it, even as it breaks new ground. John the Baptist symbolizes a break with the Judaism of his day. Jesus takes that and goes further. And later on in John, you're going to hear Jesus make this incredible claim that his followers are going to do even greater things than he did. Now, Ken Wilber uses um, two phrases that I think are very helpful here. The phrases are transcend and include, and the other phrases negate and preserve to describe this process of moving on. When something new comes into consciousness, it transcends the former level of consciousness, and yet that former level is included, right? It transcend and include. And a way to understand what he meant by negate and preserve is to use the example of a child learning to walk. When a child learns to walk, she negates crawling as her primary means of getting around. But in her mind and experience, she retains the ability to crawl. So transcend and include and negate and preserve are ways of saying that each new level of consciousness rests on the previous level. So the universal story that we're learning from the evolutionary cosmologists tells us that there is a single creation event that began more than 13 billion years ago and it continues in an ongoing process even in this very moment. And we know that the material world develops in the direction of greater complexity and greater consciousness. And what I'm affirming is that this same principle is true in the spiritual world. Now, I did not mean just to contribute to a notion of dualism, because the universal story informs us that the spiritual and the material worlds are the same. And, and, and though the writers of John had no notion of evolution as we do, what they're describing is a leap of development in spiritual understanding. Something absolutely new emerges. And one of the specific markings of this leap is communion. And by communion, I mean out of our autonomy... Our ability to relate to each other and to see that just like all other matter in the cosmos, we are who we are in relationship. Salvation is an acknowledgement of the connectedness of all that is. We're in this evolutionary venture together, so that what one of us, what one of us does. affects the others, of which we are all a part. Salvation is ultimately communal, and yet, paradoxically, it requires personal transformation in order for the communal to become a reality. Come here tonight? (laughs) Now, nobody's going to force any of this on you or me.
1: But we do have the baptism.
0: Water is back here. Yeah. Full dunking. We're invited, and, and, and we choose to accept the invitation or, or not. Now, here's the tricky part. The energy that is both behind and in the Bing, Big Bang is drawing us forward. That's why you're here today. I mean, what kind of strange bird comes on Sunday to hear talk about transformation of consciousness is there's not already a desire in you to move in that direction. Now, I believe that one of the ways we do this is by paying deep attention to what the unconscious offers us and bringing that into light. And uh, this, that's the transformation of consciousness. And um, I will just tell you that there was a time in my life when doing um, dream interpretation saved my life. It, it, the dream interpretation is, to me, the transformation of consciousness, and Sanford wrote a lot about it, and uh, to that end, I want to offer you a dream. Uh, this is not my dream. This is a dream uh, by a guy named Stephen Presville that um, I just love. This is, this is the dream. I was part of the crew of an aircraft carrier. Only the ship was stuck on dry land. It was still launching its jets and doing its thing, but it was marooned a half a mile from the ocean. Now, I'm going to interrupt Pressfield Stream here and do a little analysis. (laughs) When we're in a vehicle of any kind in dreams, moving from one place to another, that is a representation of our persona, our act, of how we get around, right? So usually we're in a car, sometimes we're in an airplane or whatever, and to make sure that it's appropriate for the context and all that sort of stuff. Boats are, are typically powerful mythic symbols. You have Noah's Ark. You have the Iliad. You have Jesus in the boat calming the sea. There's The sh- church as a ship. Boats are really symbolically very powerful. Okay? This boat is not where it's supposed to be. It's on dry land. So there's incongruity. There's something that's not... Fit here. And the ocean in dreams is a symbol for God, of the deep unconscious. And so the boat needs to be on the water, but it's not there, not doing its thing. It's not where it's supposed to be. Okay, back to the dream. <laughs> I love this dream. Okay. <laughs> Pressfield says, the sailors all knew how screwed up the situation was, and they felt it as a keen and constant distress. The only bright spot was there was a marine gunnery sergeant on board nicknamed Largo. In the dream, it seemed like the coolest name anyone could possibly have, Largo. I loved it. Largo was the one guy on the ship who knows exactly what's going on. He's the tough old serge who makes all the decisions and runs the show. But where was Largo? I was standing miserably by the rail when the captain came over and started talking to me. Even he was lost. It was his ship. But he didn't know how to get it off dry land. I was nervous finding myself in conversation with the brass. I couldn't think of a thing to say. But the skipper didn't seem to notice. He just turned to me and casually said, what the hell are we going to do, Largo? That's a question, isn't it, about our lives, about our world? What the hell are we going to do, Largo? Hmm. No matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this. You carry precious cargo, so watch yourself, and see you here next week. Thank you. <clears throat> I shouldn't...